It's important, though, that um, that we read the prophet that was appointed for today. That, that uh, passage from Ezekiel is a very good passage uh, from last week, and um, it's, it's important that we kind of contextualize this parable uh, with the book of Isaiah, the reading from Isaiah in chapter 5, and I'm going to read it now. It's uh, Isaiah chapter 5, I believe, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines, but, and then he built a watch tower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there, was there, having a little trouble here, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I also will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but beheld bloodshed for righteousness, but beheld an outcry. The word of the Lord. I want you to know why I was having trouble reading that. I, um, everything up here is in an 18-point font, and that's in about a 9-point. So. Today's gospel, the parable of the wicked tenants, is an allegory. It's a story wherein the words and images stand for something other than what's literally being said. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and Pilgrim's Progress are powerful examples of allegorical stories. The point of allegory is for the reader to look beyond the story itself to uncover its meaning, its why. In the church's historical reading of this allegory, God is the landowner. The house of Israel, which we just heard in Isaiah, is the vineyard. Jewish religious leaders are the tenant farmers. The Old Testament prophets are the representatives who had come to collect what was due to the landowner. Jesus is the son who finally came and who was killed. And the church, Jew and Gentile, is the group invited then to join the work in the vineyard. Jewish religious leaders have failed to carry out their obligations to God, both in their personal lives and in leading the nation of Israel. Their privileged role in caring for God's vineyard will be stripped from them and given instead, it says in verse 43, to a people producing its fruits. By the way, we are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 
33 through 46. The church will be a new people consisting of disciples gathered from every nation and brought together as one new people in the unfolding of God's kingdom or vineyard in the world. This is the second of three parables that Jesus tells in the temple courtyard on Tuesday of Holy Week to illustrate God's judgment on the Jewish religious leaders' rejection of Messiah's invitation to life in the kingdom of the heavens. Just two days before, Jesus had entered Jerusalem riding on a colt and been hailed by the crowds as Messiah, the son of David. Matthew says the whole city was in turmoil as he entered the temple and began to teach. Jesus returns then to Bethany for the night and on the way back into town on Monday morning, curses a fruitless fig tree, symbolizing the coming destruction of the temple and the devastating and divesting the power of its leadership. And then he proceeds to the temple, whereupon he literally upends a corrupt price gouging scheme, overturning the money changers' tables. The following day, he enters the temple courtyard to teach, and not altogether surprisingly, at this point, receives a direct challenge to his authority from the chief priests and elders. This happens earlier in the chapter, chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. I'm going to read it. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them somewhat scorchingly. And by the way, for all of any of us that watched The Chosen all the way through, Every time Jesus would do this, I don't know about you, but I, I know how this story ends. I know that he was fulfilling God's purposes, but I always wanted to shout, no, <laughs> just take the easy way out, make peace. But he doesn't. He says, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from, heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then you, did you not believe it? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Which didn't win him any points uh, with the Pharisees. The three parables that follow this are a response to this challenge by the Pharisees. And each one speaks directly to these Jewish leaders, not to the Jewish people as a whole. And this is critically important. Because in the first parable, the parable of the two sons, when Jesus says in chapter 21, verse 31, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you, he's not judging the Jewish people but rather their, their religious leaders, and they knew it. Because in verse 45, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Duh. I mean, tragically, off and on throughout history, Christians have interpreted this as God's rejection of the Jewish people, when in fact, Jesus is drawing a line here 
within Judaism and not between Jews and Christians. Because at this point, there were no Christians. And in light of the events in the past couple of days, I, I, I need to say something par parenthetically, but very important, I think. For Christians and for our nation, the relationship with Israel today is complicated. And the lines between the secular Israeli state and the people and land of Israel with which they are inextricably linked by covenant can be blurry. But nearly 100% of Old Testament prophecy, and particularly in the New Testament, Romans 9 through 11, the part that most of us skip over when we get to the end of chapter 8, just so we can get to chapter 12, except Steve, who's like a pit bull with a steak when he gets to preach from Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's the only one I know that looks so much forward to that. But nearly 100% of Old Testament prophecy, and particularly these three chapters in Romans 9 through 11, make it clear that God is not done with the Jewish people or the land of Israel. Peacemakers scramble and politicians plot to bring about what will be in their personal best interests as the world forever wrestles with the problem of the Holy Land, but only one voice matters. The voice of God, who, as we know from Psalm 24, 1, created the earth and owns it all. The Jews are still his people. Their failure to receive my, uh, Messiah at this point, though there are those who have, doesn't mean that God is finished with them. While most Old Testament covenants had conditions, the foundational one, the, the one God made with Ab Abraham in Genesis 12, had none. Listen to these I statements from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name before God changed it, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those who dishonor you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And later, in Genesis 17, 7, and 8, God declares, I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. The covenant, this covenant did not rest on Israel's performance but entirely on God's character and his eternal plan and so those of us who have been spiritually grafted in into the vine and into the vineyard of God's promise to Abraham we should at the very least be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, praying 
for swords to be beaten into plowshares, praying for our brothers and sisters in that land, both Jewish and Arab believers in Messiah, praying that all the people in this region will turn their hearts to him and praying for the Lord's healing over this land, a place that is so dear to his heart. End parenthesis. But after speaking of vineyards in this parable, part, part of the basis for the parable is the passage from the prophet Isaiah that, that I just read, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which recognizes the house of Israel as the vineyard of the Lord of hosts and predicts judgment for Israel's failure to yield good grapes. Jewish leaders simply could not have failed to understand this illusion. This parable intensifies the meaning of Isaiah 5 by combining it with the Jewish history of rejecting the prophets and culminates in the judgment commanded by the owner, the death of the tenants and the transfer of the care of the vineyard to others in verse 41. Interestingly, it's the Jewish leaders themselves that pronounce judgment in response to Jesus' rhetorical question in verse 40. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And in judging the tenants, they judge themselves. The remainder of this passage is a scriptural interpretation of the parable. Verse 42 quotes Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the very psalm that people had proclaimed when Jesus had entered Jerusalem just two days before. Psalm 118 is a Hillel, a Hillel or praise psalm sung at Passover. And this introduces some very rich allusions. The celebration of Passover and deliverance from bondage, a replaying of Jesus' triumphal entry two days before, and whispers of Jesus' own impending rejection and violent death which fulfills and enacts deliverance from bondage for all people, not only for the Jews. Christ, our Passover, will soon be sacrificed for us. And while this parable should be interpreted in its historical context, as part of the teaching of Jesus as a response to the religious leaders of his day and of then the then imminent move of the gospel beyond Israel, it also implicates us today. Because the words of Jesus are eternal, always both historically and contemporarily significant and true. They're specific to his time, for sure, but they're also literally timeless. John Calvin, in his commentary on this parable, which I read through another commentator, not as a primary source, said the same thing about his day and identified at least two points that are relevant to both the 16th and the 21st centuries. That we should, first one is that we should expect the reign of Christ to be hindered and two, whatever resistance is mounted against the gospel, Christ will prevail. So I want to take some direction from him. First, his second point, because that one's quicker. Whatever resistance comes against the gospel, the Christ will prevail. The cornerstone remains forever secure, holding up the building. Jesus, Calvin says, suffers absolutely no harm, loss, or diminution when he is rejected or betrayed. 
He forever retains his place given to him from the Father. Whatever the apparent success of those who resist and attack Christ, the authority and purposes of God will prevail. As it says in verse 42, this was the Lord's doing. The great preacher, the English Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, later summed this up well. And we ought to, we ought to think of this one often. The gospel is like a lion. And you don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. <laughs> we should never feel anxious or unconfident in Christ's church, simply because it is Christ's church, and he is the head. <laughs> this is something my counselor, Thad, has had to drill into my head over and over again as I have fretted to him about this church on occasion. Really, mostly my own insecurities. Does any, anyone read too much into that? Okay, so to Calvin's first point, that'll take just a, a little bit more time. Calvin says this parable teaches us to expect rejection of the gospel but not the gospel of a system of ideas and argument or a series of propositions and logical syllogisms requiring assent. Christian faith is not at its core a philosophy or a worldview. Personal rejection of Jesus, the murder of the son in verses 37 through 39 is the heart of this parable. The issue is rejection of him as rightful Lord as God's anointed Messiah, through whom and only through whom God is given what God is due. Rejection of the landowner's own son insists that the heart of our faith isn't ideas, arguments, or propositions, but personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The tenants did not seize and kill an idea, a principle, or a doctrine. They seized and killed the son, which means the gospel is a person. And that person can be known and can be rejected. So who does the rejecting in our day? Broadly speaking, we don't have to look very far to see that the gospel is under attack, as it always has been from the outside, of course shouldn't be surprised, but we've got to dig a little deeper because the context of this parable is Jesus warning the religious insiders of his day. So we're pointed beyond the rejection of Jesus from outside to a kind of rejection that's even more insidious and dangerous. This parable raises the issue that Jesus will be rejected not only by strangers, but by those of his own household. Calvin describes it as members rising up against their own head, the vine dressers against the proprietor. The builders rejecting the foundation of the stone that, the foundation stone that upholds the very building that they are trying to build. So at a, at a deeper level, this parable confronts the rejection of Jesus by some of the very ones he's invited into his own kingdom. 
I mean, it's, and it's easy for us to see a kind of conscious rejection of Jesus as Lord in much, if not all, of the progressive Christian theology of our day. But I think for you and for me, it can be something equally pernicious. It's a kind of de facto unconscious rejection of Jesus as Lord in much, if not all, what's funny? It's a, it's a kind of de facto unconscious rejection saying no to the lordship of Jesus by the other lesser everyday things in life we're saying yes to. Here's what I mean. A key question in counseling and professional coaching and in the rest of life actually is if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? It's key because it reflects a simple reality. Yes to certain things necessarily means saying no to others. We all know this from our own time and finances. Two things that for most of us are limited. When Lauren and I decided as young parents to break free from some of what was for us at the time the tyranny of money and begin tithing, actually tithing, it meant saying no to some things that we had become accustomed to. And we were learning as we were going, and I, I want to say we started out at a small percentage, maybe 3 or 4%, and worked our way up from there. But we would be with our boys, and they, they would want something, or they would want to go out someplace to eat. And, and we, would, we started kind of by saying we can't afford that, which is a victim statement and a lie. We just had to say we've chosen not to spend money on that so that we can do something better with our money. We had to say no to some things to say yes because yes here necessarily means no here and conversely no here is the only way to say yes here. St. Paul, one of the very leaders that Jesus was addressing in this parable illustrates this very idea perfectly in today's reading from Philippians 3. Listen again to what it says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. No here is the only way to say yes here. And Paul says he does this counting everything as loss in order to gain Christ. And a few verses later in verse 17, he says, brothers and sisters, you must join in imitating me. So this is a command for all believers. So with that in mind, what does it mean to count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ? First of all, it's important to understand that this is not advanced discipleship. 
It is basic or mere Christianity confirmed in Jesus' words in Luke 14, 33. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's not saying anyone who doesn't get rid of everything. What he's saying is you cannot allow anything to have supremacy over you. Renouncing all that we have is the same thing as counting everything as loss. To be a Christian is to find Jesus so sufficient and satisfying that we count everything else as what he says here, garbage, rubbish, loss. So what? What does that mean for us today? Well, in everyday practical terms, I see this as meaning at least four things. First one is this, counting all as loss means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will, as a matter of habit, choose Christ. Because he doesn't bring us to these crisis points of either or at every turn or even very often. Nevertheless, we are ready. We're resolved in our hearts and practiced over and over in smaller things. That if the choice must be made, we will choose Christ. Every time I get to the end of the runway to take off with a student, we stop at the hold line and the students are required to give me an emergency briefing. And in that emergency briefing, it just goes something like this. We have engine trouble on the runway. We're going to pull the uh, throttle in the mixture and brake on the remaining runway. If we have an engine failure below 1,000 feet, we will fly straight and land as straightforward as possible. If it's above 1,000 feet, we'll attempt a return to the airport gliding because you can't. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the aerodynamics of the thing. But we practice this. We recite it every time and we have this way of switching the controls where if I say my airplane he just takes his hands off the controls and we practice this in every flight he says your airplane and I confirm my airplane but we practice precisely what we do and how we'll do it when we're not in an emergency. We're not faced with either or at the time. But we are practicing for it all the time. And practice makes what? It makes habit. Habits are literally nothing more than behaviors over time. So if you're not regularly saying no to small things, you likely won't say no to the big ones. That's just reality. Jesus himself said in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Many of us have so ordered our lives that we don't have the capacity or the energy to say yes, yes to Jesus, yes to giving more or even much of our time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors, either inside or outside of the church. I'm really busy too, so I get it. But we must consistently be asking ourselves and each other, 
if we love each other? What are the lesser things we're saying yes to here that are making, making me, making you say no to the better things here? So that's the first thing. Second, counting all as loss means that we will purposely, purposefully deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Christ so that we gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way we relate to everything else. We embrace pleasant things by being thankful to Christ and we endure hurtful things by being patient through Christ. Three, counting all as loss means that we will seek to deal with the things of this world in ways that demonstrably and consistently show that they are not our treasure, but rather that Christ is our treasure. That is, we hold things loosely, share things generously, and ascribe value to things only and always in relation to Christ. Four, counting all as loss means that if we lose the things this world offers, we will not lose our joy or our treasure or our life because Christ is our joy, our treasure, and our life. That means in smaller losses, as it says in Philippians 2.14, we will not grumble, and in greater losses, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we will grieve, but not as those who have no hope. This is what I believe it means to find Jesus so sufficient and satisfying that we count everything else as loss. None of us loves Christ perfectly or lives this consistently. And I know tons of people who are way better at it than me. But to be a follower of Jesus, to be, to be Christian means these ways of learning to say no to other things will be the settled, joyful, and defining aspiration and telos of our lives, what we're always living toward. Learning more and more to say no so that more and more we can say yes. Counting everything is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, and being found in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.